You may have noticed this past week that Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chen announced a $3 billion effort to accelerate scientific research with the wildly ambitious goal of curing all disease in our children's lifetime. It's a very big gift. But you might also remember that last December, when their first child was born, they publicly released a letter to our daughter in which they said, among other things, that they were pledging themselves to give away 99% of their assets during the course of their lifetimes. They wanted to advance several worthwhile causes, including health care. I say good for them. Of course, they've had mentors in this process, especially in the last 30 years or so. One particular person who sort of set the ball rolling in this regard was someone I told you about um, a number of years ago, a man named Chuck Feeney. I mentioned how Feeney had grown up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, in an Irish-American neighborhood, eventually becoming something of a legend in entrepreneurs, among entrepreneurs and philanthropists. To refresh your memory, back in 1960, Feeney joined with a couple of partners selling five-pack boxes of liquor to American sailors in ports around Europe eventually expanding into a worldwide empire of duty-free airport shops. You've all bought something there at one time or another, you travelers. And it made Feeney a very wealthy man. By 1988, Forbes magazine had included Feeney in the top 20 of its 400 richest people, underestimating the value of his assets at $1.3 billion. But more importantly, the trouble even with that estimate was that six years before that, Feeney had secretly and irrevocably transferred his entire interest in the business to a charitable foundation, keeping less than $5 million for himself. That would have been in 1982. When all of this finally became public, he said, I did not want money to consume my life. He had set up these foundations offshore for privacy, and none of the pieces of the organization bore his name, which is largely unheard of in most of philanthropic circles. He also, also unheard of, he refused to take tax deductions for his giving, which would have exposed his largesse. So not only did he give everything away, he got no tax benefit for it either. When asked why he wanted to stay anonymous, he responded, I just felt I didn't see the need for blowing a horn. It was a legal quarrel with his partners who had not known of his philanthropy that outed him to the world in the 90s. Well, 
In the meantime, since establishing his foundations called the Atlantic Philanthropies, he's managed to give away more than $7 billion with the goal of spending all of it by the end of this year. And that's why I thought of it. 2016 was the year he had set way back as the year to be fully, uh, that his, his accounts would be divested. And he would be closing Atlantic Philanthropies finally in 2020. According to Feeney, if I have $10 in my pocket and I do something with it today, it's already producing $10 worth of good. He believes people should start giving early in life. Everyone knows when they're born, but nobody knows when they die. If you want to give it away, think about giving it away while you are alive because you'll get a lot more satisfaction than if you wait until you're dead. Plus, it's a lot more fun. One of the persons on the receiving end of Feeney's generosity, a university president, said that what was so astonishing was Feeney's wish to be ordinary. Chuck would walk around in his raincoat and pop his head around the corner of a door. He has a very simple way of life. He cherishes fundamental values. He puts us all to shame. If Chuck Feeney was not a very successful businessman, he would be a very successful Benedictine monk. Now, the first time I heard about Chuck Feeney was a chance encounter with the CEO of Atlantic Philanthropies quite a number of years ago now. And we wound up having lunch. And I was transfixed as I heard about a man who grew up with little, amassed a fortune in relatively short order, and then almost immediately decided to give it all away. Of course, all this could set up Chuck Feeney as some sort of paragon of virtue, which isn't good for him or us. Feeney says, I'd be the last person to tell someone what to do with their money. They're entitled to do whatever they want. And so they are, of course. Of course. All of us are completely free to do whatever we want with whatever we have. I, I think that's a near sacred value in our culture. We cherish our independent autonomy as among our most precious entitlements in our capitalist society. That's right at the tippy top. Still, it strikes me that Feeney's free exercise of his autonomy can startle a conversation about how we exercise our autonomy. Our fixations around money, stuff, things, and status can become so rigid and calcified that we become immune to conceiving of alternative ways of understanding our material existence. His example is jarring, I think, for most people. So jarring that it's easy to set it aside. Feeney was happy with simple things. He had grown up in a humble, hard-working house and watched his parents constantly help others, he reports. In an oft-told story by him, each morning his mother 
would jump in the car and conveniently drive by a disabled neighbor as he walked to the bus just so she could give him a ride every morning. I believe that it is very, very hard for us to gain an objective, some kind of an objective perspective around these matters, given the all-encompassing consumerist mindset within our culture and the near deification of material prosperity. I think a pretty good case could be made, for instance, that the economic realm has become our primary moral order and that religion has often become the spiritual justification of our economic behavior. But this sort of conversation requires willingness on our part to bracket as best we can our current point of view and attempt to see our situation from another perspective. That's difficult, though. What, what can startle us into seeing things somewhat differently? Well, Jesus is good at that. Like I said last week, Jesus wants to provoke us. He tells the tale of a rich man and a poor one. Tradition assigns his name Dives to the former, which comes from the Latin word for rich. Jesus assigns the name Lazarus to the other man, which means God has helped. Lazarus is a desperate, hungry, and pitiable man who Dives does not see lying at his gate, for no doubt Dives has more pressing matters to attend to. After all, he's an important wealthy figure in the community. He does not see the man at his gate. However, in death, their situation is reversed and Dives claims ignorance as his defense. He just didn't know any better, he says, for his narcissistic insularity and lack of care while he lived. Please send Lazarus to warn my brothers to change their ways. He begs of Father Abraham, the story then ends with this little exchange. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And Dive said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone, you know, if someone goes to them from the dead, then they, then they'll see. That'll wake them up. And Abraham says back to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead which sort of underscores the point I was making. It's very hard to startle us into taking a different perspective on these matters. Now, lest you think this little story is a diatribe against wealth per se, we should remember that Abraham was himself a wealthy man. And within the logic of the parable, he's hallowed above all others. Something more nuanced and important and true is at stake here than simple dichotomy. Something, something very, very fundamental and essential. So here's, here's what I'm interested in today. I'm interested in our exploring our fundamental commitments. And this business concerns each one of us 
from the inside out. Each one of us from the inside out. And in this way, Chuck Feeney can serve as a straw man for considering our own response to Jesus' message. Now, as you have heard me say a whole lot of times over the years, well, let me put it this way in the form of a question. What did Jesus reference or speak about more often than anything else by a long shot? Do you know the answer to that? What did he reference subject-wise more than anything else by a long shot? Money. Money. Our tendency as a culture is to think he must have talked a lot about sex because that's what we're preoccupied with. And of course, he was silent on the topic. But our true preoccupation, oh, that he hammered over and over and over again. And you know why? Because he knew the direct route to our most sensitive place. And it wasn't as though he was putting forth a detailed economic policy. No, he didn't do that. But he does know that quick route to our sweet spot. And he also knows that neighborliness, that is, loving our neighbors as ourselves, invariably involves issues of economic disparity. You cannot ignore it. If you're going to love your neighbor, you cannot ignore economics actually. Well, there are two issues, really. Loving God above all things and loving our neighbors as ourselves. When Chuck says, for instance, I didn't want money to consume my life, he's making a claim about ultimate concern. Do you see it? I don't want money to consume my life. He's making a claim. It begs the question, well, just what does consume his life? Uh, But then really, what we're really after here is not his response to that question, but our own. Our own. What consumes our life, really? And let's be clear, we're not promoting an anti-success message here. On the contrary, excellent success is a very good thing. Chuck Feeney was a very successful man. He was very successful making money, and he was very successful at giving money away. I'm guessing we all want our version of success. Abraham is emblematic of this. Excellent success comes as a result of exercising all of the various talents and capacities that we've been given to their utmost of learning and growing and maturing and of using the good gifts that are ours to fashion excellent ends. Who doesn't want to fashion excellent ends? Still within these walls, we understand that some commitments are clearly more fundamentally important than others. Some are. A precious few are crucially important, we say. So while our parable is at least a stern warning about wealth and poverty, the root issue is one of trust and faith. It concerns the answer to this question. What matters most of all? 
At what altar do you bow? And this one. Does the content of my life square with my rap? Does it all square up? And in the language of Timothy, do we believe in an invisible world of righteousness and truth? Or do we instead place all of our hope in things we can touch and see and handle and manipulate and best of all, control? Best of all. Do we trust God or not? What does the evidence of our lives reveal? It was the evidence of Dive's life that caught him in the snare. You know, friends, given that we're receiving new sisters and brothers into our family today, it's not a bad idea to review the basics. You know, why we're in this, all doing this on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock in the first place. We're all in this together, all thrown together around a common goal. And here we say that goal is to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. You hear that ad nauseum here. And the reason for that is it's so easy to forget what our fundamental commitments are, that we need constant reminding. And I throw myself right into the same mix along with you. We need to hear it. We can't hear it enough, quite frankly. It's so easy to lose track of it when you're out and about in the world, on the street, among your friends on Saturday night. That's our essential purpose, loving God and neighbor. And as, we'll, as we go forward together, we'll continue to unpack all the ways we can live into this and day by day grow into our capacity to embody the truth we say we claim. You know, the wonder is that we've been given to each other for this purpose. I, I, I always marvel at this. I always marvel at who shows up and who decides to throw in with us. And completely unpredictable people, wonderful people, astonishing people, gifted people. A great wealth of talent and goodwill and generosity has been assembling here. It's quite something, really. Quite something. We're not the biggest game in town, but I tell you that we're one of the most interesting and the most talented collections of seekers after the way of God. I believe that, really. Here's the invitation to take Paul's words to heart Because we have been so richly blessed, let us be rich in good works and generous and ready to share, storing up for ourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of the life that really is life. Did you hear that phrase as our passage came to an end? To take hold of the life that really is life. So much of the time, We 
fickle people are taking hold of a life that is small case and not worthy of the beauty and dignity of our givenness as having been created in God's image. Paul tells us, invites us to take hold of the life that really is life, capital L. And I think to myself, imagine if you did that. You really, from the inside out, took hold of the life that really is life. And then imagine if a whole room full of people did the same thing. I tell you, we'd really have something then. We'd really be cooking up something then. Yes, we would.